Uh, well, anyway, uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Steve, and I am the lead pastor here, and we are in uh, the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at the second half of that together here in just a moment. As you're finding that, if you need a Bible, raise your hand, and someone on our team will come around and make sure that you have one of those. And uh, again, as that, those are getting passed out and we're kind of finding our place within the text, just want to say a couple of things to create some context for where we are. We've been in this long journey through Matthew now for, uh, for several weeks, and uh, we've been looking at it in movements or chunks. We're in the fourth of seven movements, and we're calling this movement Kingdoms in Conflict because we're discovering that as Jesus teaches and invites people to be a part of his kingdom, it is different then. It has a different set of values than other kingdoms and other visions for what the kingdom of God might look like. And so these things are beginning to butt heads. There is this conflict between kingdoms. And in today's text, we are going to see uh, another one of these moments, a, a showdown sort of moment between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the uh, part of the religious leadership of that day, and uh, they're going to get into it in a big way uh, in our scene today. Before we get to that, though, I, I want us to think about a, a particular word. This is an old-fashioned, churchy word. It's a word that comes uh, very much at the heart of this conflict we're going to be looking at. It's the word blasphemy. All right, everybody, one of everybody's favorite words, right? Blasphemy. The dictionary definition of blasphemy is the act or offense of speaking sacrilegiously about God or sacred things. Now, today, we, we still use this word, even though it's an old-fashioned word, we still use this word fairly often. We use it more broadly. And we use it to uh, attack things that don't fit into our worldview, right? For uh, the better part of seven years, Amy and I, we lived in, in Boston. And in the Boston and New England area, sports is the primary religion of, of that region. And, and at, at the very sort of uh, focal point of that uh, is Tom Brady, all right? <laughs> Tom Brady can do no wrong in Boston and New England, except one time. And, and if, you know, if you know the area, and I'm going to mix some sports here for just a, a minute, so bear with me. But if you know the area, you also know that there is a longstanding over a hundred year now rivalry between the Boston Red Sox and the New York Yankees. And they hate each other. And if you show up in Boston wearing a, a Yankees hat or Yankees gear, you are inviting people to speak into your life. <laughs> and, and people will do it. They will let you know. They will let you hear about it and, and give you all sorts of interesting comments and feedback. So all of that to say is it was a big deal when Tom Brady got photographed wearing a Yankees hat, all right? We happened to be in Boston when this happened. It was like a total meltdown, just massive cognitive dissonance and existential angst as people had to sort of reconcile, oh, Tom Brady is wearing a Yankees hat. Blasphemy. How could he do this to us? And the fascinating thing is it was, it was very, very quickly forgiven the moment the football season started. It was like, oh, we're just going to forget about that and move on. Now, I, I joke about that, and I definitely roll my eyes uh, uh, when I encounter Patriots fans and the like. But I do the same thing. Like, I have my own uh, heroes and my own sort of blasphemy. You cannot come into my house and speak ill of Buster Posey or Steph Curry. If you do that, I will fight you. 
okay? And this is not just a sports thing. This shows up in all different areas of life. In the world of Star Wars right now, there's this big raging debate about uh, the Disney stuff versus the George Lucas stuff. And some people will consider one or the other to be blasphemous. And maybe you're into comic books or certain genres of music or types of cars, but there's this very human thing where we draw lines around the things that we love and sort of hold sacred. And if you cross those lines, it's blasphemous, right? We, we call you blasphemer, heretic, things like this. This is the sort of conflict we step into this morning, although far more serious than Tom Brady wearing a Yankees hat. So Matthew chapter 12 is where we are. We're going to going to begin in verse 22. And the scene begins like this. They brought him, him being Jesus, they brought Jesus a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. And all the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Now the, the text begins with the word then. So a few uh, words about what comes before the then. This takes us back to last Sunday. If you were here with us, the beginning of Matthew chapter 12 is all about a conflict over the issue of Sabbath. Jesus steps into a couple of Sabbath controversies uh, quite intentionally. And we learn that the Sabbath is, is not just a, a nice day off to go run some errands. It was this fundamental identifier for the people of Israel, for the Jews. And so when Jesus flaunts the Sabbath by picking grain and then especially by healing a man's hand, he's again not just uh, bending the rules, he is violating this thing that they saw as being so fundamental to their identity as a people. It's what made them different from other people. And we also saw that it wasn't just the things that Jesus did. There's a couple of very provocative statements that he makes earlier on in chapter 12. One, he says, I am greater than the temple. The temple, another significant identifier for the people of Israel. And so to say I'm greater than the temple is a very bold statement. And then he says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I am over the Sabbath. I am above the Sabbath. I rule the Sabbath. And we saw that the, the sort of core issue of this conflict was interpretation. How do we interpret the Sabbath law and rules? When Jesus says it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, he is interpreting those laws and rules through the lens of mercy. Do you remember Jesus' words, I desire mercy, not sacrifice? Interpreting the law through mercy and through this question, what is good news for people? The Pharisees, though, are interpreting the law through sacrifice, a list of right and wrongs, their system of behaviors of what you could do and could not do on the Sabbath. And at the, uh, at the end of this round of the fight, the bell rings and they retreat to their corners, if you will. And the Pharisees are not just upset about this. They're not just dismissive of Jesus. They set out uh, to kill him. They want to destroy Jesus and what he is trying to do, the ways that he's sort of upending and undermining their uh, ideas and their beliefs, these things that they held on to very dearly. So we see at the end of that, that 
part of the text. Jesus withdraws. He goes somewhere else. But he continues to heal people. And, and he continues to draw crowds. And so all of this brings us to this moment here today where he heals a man who was demon-possessed and blind and mute. I mean, this is a, a, a trifecta of really terrible situations. Jesus heals this man, and the crowds continue to be impressed. Matthew uses the word astonished. He's used this word several times uh, throughout our journey. They were astonished at his teaching. They were astonished at his authority. They've been astonished at his miracles, the signs that he's performing. And they're astonished today at this dramatic healing. The Pharisees, though, again, they want to kill Jesus. They want to destroy what he has started. But they can't just come out and do this. The Pharisees are, are, are law-abiding, rule-following type people and murder, killing people prohibited by the law. They can't just come out and kill them. So they have to figure out some other way to get to this goal. They're rule followers, but they're also schemers, constantly looking for loopholes in the rules. Jesus points this out several times, all the ways that they were trying to find loopholes in the rules. So their scheme begins the way that a lot of evil schemes begin with a PR campaign. All right, They want to start here by smearing Jesus' reputation, questioning his authenticity, undermining what he's doing, spreading disinformation. And again, they start here because the people are starting to sense something going on with Jesus. They're astonished at what he's doing. They say he might be the son of David. If you've been with us for this conversation, you know that this phrase has come up before. And it's a phrase of respect, but it's a very broad sort of idea. And so what we see here is that they're beginning to sense something is up with this Jesus. He's different. He has a different kind of authority. He's doing things that we've never seen before. They're not quite ready yet to name him as the one that they've been waiting for. Son of David, not Messiah. And so again, the, the Pharisees realize we got to get out in front of this. And so they start this smear campaign. I wonder if this is why Jesus keeps saying throughout Matthew chapter 12 that something greater is here. Something greater than the temple, greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon. And there's a war of information that's happening so as the crowds begin to catch on, the Pharisees decide to get out in front of this by playing the Beelzebul card, like you do when you want to discredit one of your opponents. Now this is a weird word. This is not a, a name or a word that we use a lot, but I think it's kind of uh, come to mean uh, uh, or refer to Satan in a general way. But we need to dig into this a little bit more. There's more going on here than just saying, oh, this guy's Satan. Okay, Beelzebul, that, that name comes from actually the Old Testament story. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament story, you know that for the people of Israel, there was this constant temptation to worship a god named Baal or Baal. And, and so this name is how that name developed and kind of got translated in, uh, into the Greek language. Translated literally, Beelzebub means Lord of the Flies or Lord of the Dung Heap. Uh, so not a term of endearment. And it, it referred to, more specifically, a second-in-command type demonic leader. In other words, they're referring to Satan's right-hand man. And when you really think about that, this is sort of doubly insulting to Jesus, right? 
Not only are they rejecting his own claims to be God's son, they won't even give him credit for being the worst bad guy. So there's all this disinformation swirling about. People starting to sense something's up with Jesus. The Pharisees trying to undermine all of this. And and you really get the sense that Jesus is quite fired up about this. Look with me at verse 25. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can this kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus begins to fight back here by using some logic. First argument is this. If I'm somehow in cahoots with Satan, or if I am Satan himself, this is a dumb strategy. Casting out my demons from people is is, is, uh, foolish. Why would I do this? Why would I fight my own self? And then point number two, what about you guys? Use the same logic on yourself. There were Pharisees and other rabbis who were able to cast out demons. And so if I'm doing this by Beelzebul, who are you doing it by? Jesus goes on to say in verse 29, Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Now here, Jesus acknowledges that Satan is powerful. Satan is like a strong man. And one cannot just waltz into the house of a strong man and begin to take whatever they want. You have to deal with the strong man first. And we know, as we've made our way through Matthew, that this has happened. Jesus has dealt with Satan back in Matthew chapter 4. He goes out into the desert. He fasts for 40 days. And at the end of that time, he has this interaction with Satan, these three temptations that he faces, and each time he overcomes it. And it's from that point on that he then begins his mission to take back from Satan what is rightfully God's. Commentator Matt Woodley writes this, Jesus is actually at war with Beelzebul. That's how mixed up they've gotten. Jesus is trying to enter, burglarize, ransack Satan's house, and haul away his most precious possession, human souls. Satan wants to cripple, enslave, and destroy human beings, but Jesus wants to set them free through his power. There is no neutrality in these agendas. There is no neutrality in these agendas. This has moved way beyond uh, differing interpretations about Sabbath law. This is why Jesus comes back so hard at the Pharisees. They are directly mischaracterizing his mission and purpose. They are calling the kingdom of heaven the kingdom of hell. Again, there is no neutrality here. Now we'll come back to the rest of what Jesus plot here in just a moment, but let's skip ahead a little bit and look at the second tact that they take in their plot to destroy Jesus. Looking down at verse 38, if step one was a smear campaign, get some disinformation out there, step two is a type of entrapment. Some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now just sort of uh, glancing at that, reading that in a first pass, this is sort of a weird thing. Like, well, how is this 
trapping Jesus. In fact, this seems like a really uh, silly request. Jesus has been doing all kinds of signs. He just healed a guy who was blind and mute and demon-possessed. What more of a sign do you want than that? However, what they're doing here is putting Jesus through a very common test. This is a test that you would put to a prophet to determine if they were a true or false prophet. It has its roots all the way back in Deuteronomy 13. In effect, the Pharisees are saying, okay, you're not Satan. We, we kind of blew it on that one, overstepped our pounds a little bit. But we definitely don't think that you are legit. And so we're going to run you through the false prophet exam. We're gonna, you know, you're going to sort of do this trick for us, and then we'll explain to all the people how it isn't real and how you are leading them to worship a false god. And Jesus does not go there with them. And his response is very, very interesting. Again, being accused of being a false prophet, he cites the example of maybe the most ridiculous prophet in the whole Old Testament story. He brings up Jonah. Now, if you know the story of Jonah, uh, it, it goes like this, right? Jonah's told by God, you're going to go to Nineveh, to your enemies, and you're going to tell them that God loves them and, and wants to be in a relationship with them. And Jonah's like, uh-uh, I do not want to do that. So he thinks that he can run away from God. He gets in a boat, tries to sail to the like, total opposite uh, place geographically. And God sends a storm, and this, the guys on the boat are all freaked out about the storm. And Jonah says, you can calm the storm if you throw me in the ocean. So they throw him in the ocean. He gets swallowed by a fish. The fish spits him up on land. And then Jonah very passive-aggressively goes and actually does what God told him to do. And all the people of Nineveh and the animals repent. And, and Jonah gets really ticked off about it. And this is the example that Jesus uses. This is the prophet that Jesus cites. The whole point of that story was to demonstrate to Israel God's grace and love even for their enemies. And so Jesus says to the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, you want a sign? I'll give you the sign of Jonah. And, I'm, and not just that, I'm greater than Jonah. Like Jonah, I will be three days in a grave and I will come back to life to demonstrate God's grace is for everyone, even your enemies. And not only that, and this is where it gets really serious, not only that, your enemies will then judge you for getting this thing so incredibly wrong. You are a wicked and adulterous nation, and your final condition will be worse off than where you started. Woo! Kingdoms in conflict. Jesus not holding back here at all. So twice, the Pharisees, they go after Jesus in these two different ways, and they get the business both times. Jesus does not, again, mince words at all. You brood of vipers. How can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And there's a word for us right there. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A little bit uh, before this, Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Again, no neutrality here. This verse gets us right to the heart of the matter. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. We get right now to the, the, the heart of Jesus' purpose and mission. Jesus did not come simply looking for people who would intellectually agree with him. 
It did not even come looking for people who uh, could achieve a certain level of moral purity or, or buy into his moral code. Jesus' priorities are relational and missional. What do I mean by this? Relational. Who is with me? Who's with me? Jesus knows from their words and actions they are not with him. What they're doing reveals that they are trying to undermine, trying to work against his purposes in direct opposition to his goals. And his goal, his purpose, his mission is what? It is to gather. It is to gather. He gathers the sick and the hurting in Matthew chapter 8. He gathers notorious sinners and tax collectors in Matthew chapter 9. He gathers disciples in Matthew chapter 10. And then he sends them out to do what? To gather the lost sheep of Israel. But if you are not going to gather with them, he is against you. He will not stand, he will not let people stand in the way of what he wants to do. And what Jesus wants to do is gather people who are lost. Now, in the midst of all of this uh, very harsh, pointed conversation comes some really, really good news. Verse 31, I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. Think about that for a minute. Every type of sin and slander can be forgiven. There is nothing that you have done that God can't or won't forgive. This is such good news. Jesus has been demonstrating this over and over again in the ways that he sought out the hurt and the broken, in the ways that he's healed people and met people's needs, in the choosing of these unlikely heroes to be a part of his team and to further his purposes. This is his mission, to gather. And it's the mission that he's given the church as well. Now, one of our uh, one of our core values here at Discovery is the value of authenticity. And the way that we talk about it here is this idea of church for the rest of us. And, and this is always an idea that gets some pushback. Church for the rest of us. Isn't church supposed to be for everybody? What are you talking about? Of course church is supposed to be for everyone. But I think that that line of thinking misses a very important truth. And it is so important that we understand this concept. Why is Jesus gathering he is gathering because there are people who have been scattered. He's looking for lost things because there are people who are lost. There are people in his day and age who have been told, you cannot participate. You are out. You are unclean. This is not for you. And in our day and age, this kind of stuff still happens. There are so many people who have been told, you are out. You can't be here. This church is not actually for you. They have been scattered. But that's who Jesus goes after. Fishermen, women, lepers, the blind, the poor, the demon-possessed, tax collectors, notorious sinners. He goes after those People because they are the ones who had been scattered by the system that they lived in. And what Jesus is doing is he is saying through his words and actions, this is for you. This kingdom is for you. This good news is for you. And the people who have the hardest time with that, who have the hardest time with church for the rest of us, tend to be the ones who think, 
I'm already good. Who already think, I'm in, I'm fine. Which leads us to the very troubling thing that Jesus says next. I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, what Jesus says here, it kind of reads like a philosophical riddle, like you've maybe been in these conversations before, right, where can God make a rock so big that he can't even pick it up? Is there a sin so bad that not even God can forgive it? Now, a couple of uh, bits of context here before we begin to answer this question. Earlier in this chapter, Matthew showed us how Jesus has fulfilled yet another prophecy from Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. We know that this part of the prophecy has already happened. It occurred in Matthew chapter 3 at Jesus' baptism. The Holy Spirit comes on Jesus. And then Jesus himself quotes the words of Isaiah in Luke chapter 4. The spirit of the Lord is on me. To proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It should be very clear to us at this point that the Spirit of God is on Jesus. Why? For the purpose of gathering. To bring the outsider in, to determine justice for the nations, to set the captives free, to proclaim good news to the poor. All of this we've seen Jesus doing. So what is Jesus saying here? These, again, troubling words in verses 31 and 32. He's saying we can argue all we want about Sabbath law. You can even call me Satan. You can try to trick me all you want, but do not obstruct my mission. Do not get in the way of me gathering. Now you never see Jesus force anyone into his kingdom. But there are those who refuse, who turn away from it. For some, there is an inability to see, oh, this kingdom is for me. This good news is for me. I am the rest of us. I am the poor, the lame, the blind. I am the notorious sinner. I need to be forgiven. I need a savior. I need a king. This is good news for me. The unforgivable sin... This blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is to look at what Jesus is doing. Is to look at his kingdom, to look at who it gathers and go, nah, not for me. I refuse to participate. M. Scott Peck in his book, People of the Lie, writes, and this is from a, a psychological perspective, but I think it gets right to the heart of this uh, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He says, evil attacks others instead of facing its own failures. Spiritual growth requires the acknowledgement of one's need to grow. If we cannot make that acknowledgement, we have no option except to attempt to eradicate the evidence of our imperfection. Strangely enough, evil people are often destructive because they are attempting to destroy evil. The problem is that they misplace the locus of evil. 
Instead of destroying others, they should be destroying the sickness within themselves. As life often threatens their self-image of perfection, they are busily engaged in hating and destroying that life, usually in the name of righteousness. The fault, however, may not be so much that they hate life as they do not hate the sinful part of themselves. The idea of an unforgivable sin, it can create a certain kind of anxiety for people. These questions, oh, what, you know, what if I do this? What, what if I blow it and blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? Am I doomed forever? And, and the, the classic pastoral response to that question is, is to say, if you are asking that question, you're in a good place. You're probably not committing this kind of sin. And that's true. Because to ask the question is to recognize our own sinfulness and our need for forgiveness. And the good news is that every kind of sin and slander is forgivable. The problem, the issue here, is the refusal to seek forgiveness. The issue is the refusal to seek forgiveness. Now, the other thing at play here, I, I think, is a long-running misunderstanding of sin. I think we think too much of sin as a list of bad things, like a naughty list. You don't want to do one of those things on the naughty list. But sin is not just about lists of right and wrong. It is this deeply relational concept. When we break relationship with God, that is sin. When we violate his intended order for his creation, that is sin. When we oppose his will and his desires, that is sin. The question we need to be asking is not, did I do something on the naughty list? Instead, we need to be asking, am I in right relationship with God? And the answer to that question is only found in Jesus. Jesus, who is greater Jesus, who takes on evil, who binds up the strong man. Jesus, who rescues us from sin and death and our separation from God through his death and resurrection. You know, M. Scott Peck talks about this, like we need to destroy the evil within us. And I think we know we can never do that on our own. And again, the good news is that Jesus does that for us if we would receive it. In Luke 15... Jesus tells a story, a beautiful story, famous story, about a man who has two sons. One of the sons, the younger son, violates all the acceptable customs of the day by asking for his inheritance early. In effect, he tells his dad to drop dead. I want my stuff and I'm out of here. The father very controversially gives him what he wants, gives him what he asks for. And so the son takes his inheritance, gets as far away from home as he can possibly get, and he just squanders all of it. He ends up destitute. And the story says that at, at one point he's eating uh, food out of a pig trough, and it's at this moment that he comes to his senses. He comes to his senses and decides to head home. This is what pastors like me call repentance. Coming to our senses, turning around, heading home. He figures at least I could be a slave. Maybe my dad would take me back, let me be a slave on his property. That would be better than my current situation. So he comes home and before he even gets there, his dad sees him 
And his dad takes off, leaps off the porch, goes running down the street and hugs him and welcomes him back and, and puts this best robe on him and a ring on his finger and, and throws this huge, massive party to celebrate that his son has come home because the lost has been found, the scattered has been gathered. And that part of the story is beautiful, right? There's this whole other part of the story, though. And it's quite ominous. The older brother watches this whole thing happen, and he gets ticked off. He, he's not excited about church for the rest of us. He points out, look at all the things I've been doing. I've been working super hard. I've never gotten anything like this. What, why are we doing this for this, uh, this guy that runs off with all of your stuff? This doesn't make any sense. What about me? And, and the father says, uh, to me, this is one of the most remarkable uh, things in all of Scripture. The father says, my son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. It's here. It's for the taking. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. He was scattered and he has been gathered. And that's how Jesus ends the story. It just That's the end. We don't know what happens with the older son. Does he go in? Does he join the party? Does he celebrate with his family or does he fold his arms and refuse to enter? Jesus ends our section in Matthew today by saying this, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What is God's will? That's a huge question, obviously. It's that we would follow Jesus into right relationship with God. And that we would join him in his mission of gathering. His will is that we would join the party and invite others to join the party. And so some questions for us as we close here this morning. As you think about that story, are you the younger brother or the older brother? Have you come to your senses and turned around and come home to the Father? Are you resisting this invitation to come to the party? Who are you in that story? Don't refuse the invitation to come into the party that is the kingdom of God. Don't refuse that invitation. Let's pray. Father, there's a, a lot going on in this uh, story today. And some of it can be very troubling, very challenging. Um, Jesus speaking very directly and pointedly and even harshly at times. But it's because, as we saw, there are competing agendas. There is no neutrality in this fight for the human soul. God, thank you so much for the good news that every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. 
that because of who Jesus is, what he has done in his life and his death and his resurrection means we can have right relationship with you. We can have abundant life here and forevermore. But also, God, you invite us into this mission with you to help you gather what has been scattered. And so as we grow in our understanding of your grace and your mercy for us, how you have forgiven our sins, may we never keep that to ourselves, but extend that invitation to the party to as many people as we can. If there are people here this morning, God, who, who need to respond to this, who, who, who have maybe been resisting joining the party, would you draw them in even right now? Would they join the party even in this moment? And again, for all of us, God, would we, would we be compelled? Would, would you um, uh, continue to soften our hearts towards those who have been scattered? Together, would, would Discovery be a church that gathers with you? Your most precious possession, human souls. Again, God, we're so grateful for this good news, grateful for what Jesus has done. We want to share that with our city and with our world. Give us the courage to do that. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.